Welcome to another podcast from the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. Today's podcast was recorded on Wednesday the 8th of February 2012. Dr Liz Marchant, Head of Publishing, Science and ICT at Pearson, talks about some of the digital projects she's been involved with at Pearson Education. The primary focus is on digital delivery of science and ICT related products for secondary schools. The talk is introduced by Nicola Timbrell. Welcome everyone to the first uh, of the digital publishing lunchtime seminars. Um, this morning I'd like to introduce to you Liz Marchant. Uh, Liz is from Pearson and uh, she's head of science publishing there and she's going to talk about the things that are happening at Pearson, your views on... Well, I, th- I think I, I said I was going to talk to you about supporting the customer and driving innovation. So let's see if I do that or not. Good morning. Um, I know some of you here are actually on the digital publishing course and some of you aren't. So um, we'll see what, what, what you get out of it. Um, I think my premise from where I'm starting from is unless you really know your customers and you really understand their needs, how can you cater for... Um, for um, putting a, a concept together and then making sure that concept wants to sell. So um, that, that counts for any publishing in whatever sector you're in, um, whether it's um, print or digital. But there are some special things that come in once you start thinking in a digital world. Um, so let's, start, let's step right back and say, I'm a publisher. My job is as a publisher, my team do publishing. Um, what, what are we responsible for? What do we do? And whatever the product, we're responsible for developing a good concept um, for a service or a product, um, that we actually produce it on time and we, to the budget we said, we don't spend a fortune. Um, we, we produce something that people actually want to buy and it's very, very clear uh, what the benefits are so that the marketing and sales departments have something to work with. And at the end of the day, uh, particularly somewhere like Pearson, a FTSE 100 company, uh, we have to make sure we make a profit. And in fact, it doesn't matter if uh, I work in the educational sector and we have people such as Oxford University Press there, they're still driven by profit margins because they have to contribute back to the university. So wherever you end up in publishing, you, you end up needing to ensure that you keep a, a tight control on that. So. What's different about the digital world? And I think that's what I want to focus on. I want to go through the process of being a publisher, think about what's different in a digital world, and just to pull out some examples from my team. So you might see a bit of science as we go through, but not a lot. Okay, so a lot is the same. Um, As I said, you're providing something that people want to buy. You're creating something that they perceive as high quality. And the design has to be right for your market. Um, so here's a few things I, I pulled out. Oh, look, it's gone sideways. I don't know why that's happened. Um, one really different thing, you can change it. You, you, with a book, you publish it, it goes out there. It's in somebody's hand. You can't then go, ah, oh, sorry, I wanted to change that bit there. Um, with digital, you can. Um, you can choose whether one person accesses what you've made through perhaps a login, or many people. You can decide that, and you can decide it through the life of the product. Um, it's, 
it's a different medium. Digital is different, but um, you can also make it different through the device that people access it through. A book is a pretty standard format. You can make it landscape, you can make it portrait, you can put a, a spiral bind on it, you can do different things with it, but essentially it's a book format. Um, if you're starting to get into a digital world, you can look at it on your phone, you can have an iPad. iPads have different functionality to something like a laptop. Um, you've got interactive whiteboards. And of course, it's not flat content, you can do things with it. So different media start to come into play. You can do a lot, of, a lot more different things. And you can connect to things. So for instance, in our printed book, we might suggest a website you might want to look at. Well, that can be immediate with a digital um, product. You can just go straight there. Um, function can be as important as content. So, some people describe publishers as content providers. And I would argue against that in terms of we do provide content, but we provide it in a format that makes sense, that you can navigate through, that's in the right order to make sense. And that is just in a print format. Um, and the function in digital, you've got so many more things at your, um, at your fingertips. So rather than just saying, what functions have I got in a book? I might have a contents page, I might have an index, I might have coloured tabs that help me through this product. Um, obviously with digital there's many, many more things you can do and we must remember that digital is not equaling a web page. Web page is one format, but one of many. One thing we struggle with, again and again, and is this, this perception that oh, if it's online, A, shouldn't it be free, or B, I certainly don't expect to pay full price for it, but in a model where people are starting to move online and they want their books online and they want their content online, as many of you will know, creating that content is the most costly bit. What format you push it out on is less so, but actually creating that content costs an enormous amount of money. And if you're starting to build a model that outputs it mainly in a digital format where people expect to pay less for it, it doesn't square always. Um, obviously a major thing, you can interact with your customers. Um, you can't do this when you send a book out or you send a teacher's guide out or or um, revision guides or anything like that. It goes out there, you don't know who's got it, uh, and you can't, the only way we can interact is to send questionnaires out and hopefully they'll answer them telling you what they think about it. Obviously in a digital world, you're constantly linked to that person. And um, something that we have talked about a lot, but we have never done as well as I think we should, is actually tracking what people are doing in your product. In a book, you cannot tell which chapter they use the most, you can't tell which features, which questions they use the most. In a digital, so long as it's an online experience, not a, a cached or um, locally installed um, experience, you should be able to track. And then that's very, very powerful knowledge. That's why Tesco's is successful. All of these companies that collect knowledge about their, company, their, about their customers and do something with it, react to it as the successful ones. And Tesco's is the epitome of that. You very often find, if you go into your corner shop in Tes those little, little Tesco Expresses, you'll often find what you need, because they absolutely know what their local market wants. Each Tesco Express will be different, and it will be suited to that, that particular um, area, because they're constantly, constantly, constantly um, collecting data to see what's good, what's not, what's selling, what sells quick, what times of year. All right, so that's just a bit of a, a mass... Um, selection, it's no particular order, of the sorts of things that are different, but there are quite a lot of things that are different. So let's now go back to the process. If I'm a publisher, how do I get from a basic thought about where I need to go to a product that people want to buy? 
And this is the very basic process that I'm sure a lot of you have encountered already. First of all, who? Who is it that I'm targeting this at? Big mistake often made, big market out there, I'll do something for everybody. And it's never quite right for one single person. You have to think exactly who is this for and make it for them. And then you market it to them and sell it to them and it resonates with them and they buy it. If you come out with a very general thing that doesn't quite suit anybody, you probably won't sell it. Um, okay, I know who it is. Do I know exactly what it is they want? So we're really good at Pearson <laughs> at sitting in a room, having talked to no teachers at all or no students, and thinking what they should do is this. There's this really fancy thing we could do, some interactive planning online. Forget boring old files with lesson plans in and handwritten notes. What they should be doing is this fantastic thing over here. And actually, great idea, you know what, I never have the time, I can't get near a computer, I'm in a classroom. Uh, you've got to understand your customer and really get under the skin of what they want. And we often find it's actually quite simple things that people want, rather than the kind of grand solutions. Um, concept development. So you've got an idea of what it is they're struggling with or what it is that could um, uh, help them. You as a publisher, and this is the sign of a good publisher, can translate that into a concept. Your ideas, your thinking, to come up with a solution that absolutely matches who you're targeting it for and what their problem is or what their issue is. Um, and that's a skill and it, you won't get it right first time and um, so we'll talk about in a little while the need to test what you think is the right way of going about it. Fourth bit is you have to present this in-house and persuade the powers that be that this business case is worth pursuing. You can have wonderful ideas, digital can easily cost a fortune, you can spend ages on it if it's not well planned, it doesn't have an end point, um, you can spend a lot of money uh, needlessly and you have to show that you can deliver your profit and loss account. Then you have to make the thing and actually get it out there. We've got a, a, a platform at the moment, it's a year late, really disappointing, it's a um, really, really important platform and um, we've got this balance of when is it good enough for the market and the market wants it, get it out there and <laughs> it's a tricky one. Um, and also you don't get this so much in a print world. If you are putting out a product that is <coughs> online, that does have constant engagement with customers, you've got that ongoing support piece. And that, if you do all of those bits right, you're working well as a publisher and you can go on to your next project. So I'm going to go through them one by one, watching the time, um, and we'll just explore each one a little bit more with the kind of digital hat on. Okay, I'm going to take you into GCSE science. Who loves GCSE science? Yes. Okay, there's a few of you. Um, <laughs> I love science. Okay, um, we have just been publishing for GCSE Science. The reason we publish for it is that specifications have changed. The government has said, time to review GCSE. We're going to put a new curriculum out there. So schools think, right, the old stuff, probably out of date now. I'm going to need to buy new resources for the new curriculum. So we tend to be very led by that in education and publishing. Okay. I'll give you an example of um, AQA is one of the exam boards. It's the biggest exam board for GCSE science and there's about five or six publishers that all pile in and try and win in that market. 
So we had a look at how we could segment the market, how we could think about who we're targeting, knowing that five or six other publishers are doing exactly the same thing. Um, so we could look at it, and actually um, what we call two by two grids can be really useful here. Think of a couple of factors, high availability, teacher, student, and start to draw them out, literally draw across with four segments in, two factors, and have a think about, hmm, I wonder if we had like something aimed at the student that was high ability, or what does that feel like? And you can start to play around with these different um, segments. So you could think, split it by teacher or student purchaser. You could think like we did, actually AQA exam board, big board, five competitors. We also produce resources for Edexcel. Smaller board, only two competitors. So actually, <coughs> if we had a stab at both markets, probably quite good. There's a third exam board called OCR. We decided we wouldn't go for that. Um, quite a few competitors and a smaller market didn't feel as good. So we went for two. Um, you also look at your customer base. If you've already got a shed load of customers that buy, bought from you last time, they're immediately accessible for you to go back to in a marketing sense and say, you love this or you didn't like this about it, we've improved this. And so you've immediately got an interested um, segment. So that can, uh, it's much easier to go back to an existing market than it is to break into a new. Um, this is one, you know, digital, non-digital. When you're thinking about digital, you can segment into two different big camps, I guess. One is bog standard average, I'm okay using a computer, I'm okay using interactive whiteboard, um, but um, I'm not a mega techie, I'm not interested in being a mega techie, I just want stuff there that I can use and get on with. And it doesn't get in the way of me doing my teaching. You'll get another camp of people absolutely inspired and fizzing about technology and, and thinking about how they want to bring it into the classroom. You can't always cater for both of them. You need to think about who you're catering for, or perhaps how can you cater for both. Um, or you can go very niche. You know, we have products that are designed for SEN students, those that struggle. Um, we do have specific products for dyslexic students, for instance. And there's loads of others. I mean, you could just think of many, many ways of cutting up this market and looking at it from different angles. So what did we do? For our Edexcel publishing, we literally were the exam board. Pearson owns Edexcel. So we were the um, official publisher for Edexcel, making sure that our resources absolutely matched with the specification and that schools received one package of information about the um, specification with the textbook already there in a nice, neat package. That worked for that. We're not the official exam board for AQA. We're in an open, competitive situation there. And we thought about it, and we decided if we, if, we, uh, if we competed head on with the official publisher, we would be doing roughly the same as them, but we wouldn't have the, um, if you like, official status. That's no good. So we had to think about it, and what we actually came up with in the end was, when you are trying to produce a broad course, you can never quite support the top end or the bottom end well enough. And in schools, there's a huge ability range um, for students. So we thought, why don't we take a step back and just choose one segment, which is a high-achieving segment. We talked to some of the best schools in the country, Manchester Boys Grammar, um, um, Haberdasher's Ask, loads of different independent and, and, and state schools who really are the top schools in the country. We used them as our advisors to develop a course that was absolutely suited to those who feel like they fail if they get a B. Um, and, you know, and actually, they have their own needs. Um, so there you go.
So really think about who it's for. Don't aim for... If you don't think about this piece, you won't suit anybody properly. It doesn't matter if it's digital or not, but it's even more acute in digital. All right, next thing, think about problems you could be solving. Um, so, you know, here's a few sciencey ones. Delivering that new curriculum. It might actually be just a tweak. I might not be too bothered about it. But we might perceive it as change equals we have to focus on the change. In school, teachers might be saying, oh, there's only a couple of topics that have changed, I'm fine. In which case, they wouldn't buy your new resources if you went in just on the change because they can cope with the old ones. Is it actually something like practical work? In science, there's a real logistic thing about um, getting all the kit out, knowing the kit. Uh, you often have a lot more biologists than you do physicists, and physics experiments can be quite um, daunting for some people to set up. You know, should we help there? So we had a little look and we talked to a lot of departments trying to get a sense of um, where's the need? What's the problems we're trying to solve here? And actually, um, really understanding the practicals required in the specification turned out to be an area that um, people wanted help on, and we, we did. Actually then, if you just go in and say, what's your problem? What we need to solve? You can help them, but it's not always... Um, it limits what you're, what you're trying to do for them. Sometimes you have to think beyond that. You know, the things that they don't even know they want yet. So I'm sure 20 years ago, if you'd, you wouldn't have sat down somebody and they'd have gone, oh, I'd love an iPod. Oh, an iPad, that would solve my life. You know, they just couldn't see it. Uh, people couldn't have seen it. You, you had hovercraft. People were going to move around on hovercraft. That's what it was in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, um, and of course that never happened, but nobody foresaw what has actually been the most useful technology uh, to head our way. So sometimes you do have to think a bit out of the box. And, you know, this one, for instance, they wouldn't say necessarily, oh, I've got a real problem trying to um, get, in, get into students the latest science discoveries, but if you were to give them something that they felt went, oh, absolutely matched the specification really inspiring gosh I've never thought of using those as a starter activity it, it, it can really inspire um, but they wouldn't have identified it as a problem so obviously that's the sparkle factor that's where you want to really come in and, and, and surprise right so you know who it is that you want to build something for and you know what their needs are and with digital it's so important to understand where they're at in a digital world for instance, um, I work in, in the education sector. An 18-year-old doing A-level has a completely different capacity for engaging with a complex digital product because they're only doing three or four subjects and they've got some maturity. Think about a key stage three student, an 11, 12-year-old, trying to get them doing nine, ten subjects, logins for different products in each one. They're in a completely different place. Okay, um, then you're thinking about your concept. You've got to build your concept, which is what some of you will be doing with your prototypes um, in a digital publishing course. Um, and there's various elements to a concept, but you know what? You'll never get it right first thing, <laughs> first time. You'll have a stab at it. The best thing you need to do then is to take it back out to the market, take it to teachers and students and, and ask them to comment on it, because often, People find it hard to tell you what they want, but when they see it, they know what's right and wrong. And so actually going out with something that's not right is fine, because they'll rip it to shreds and then you'll get a really good sense of what they do and don't like and what will work. But here's some, here's some I'm not going to read them all through, but here's some things that go into a concept. 
um, the key components. Sometimes we do. We had a big course a couple of years ago that had over 50 separate published components to it. That took a lot of thinking. Um, so what, what, what's saleable? And actually, is there anything we're going to produce free? What's the price? Pricing in digital world is, is uh, one I'll talk about in a minute. Um, what's the look and feel brief? Is it supposed to be engaging and funky? Is it supposed to feel worthy and educational? Um, what's the key features? Your marketers out there are going to want to know, what do I point to when I market this? Um, you need some really engaging features that, that really illustrate the benefits that you're trying to deliver, which is the sex point. Um, and then your marketers should work with you to make sure you've got really cracking key setting lines that a teacher in our world or a student will look at, read in under three seconds and go, yes, that looks interesting because it absolutely resonates with me. Perfect world. Right, there you go. Um, so let's move on to the business case. This has got a lot of words on it. Um, there's so many more complex factors to a digital product than there ever is in a print world. Um, books, I've, I've heard people talk about before self, self um, oh, I can't think of the word, books that destroy themselves. If you produce a book on toilet paper, it will only last a few months and it'll fall apart and you need to buy a new one. Now, I'm not saying anybody actually does that, but there is a sense of additional purchase because something's worn out and is, is, is just needs, needs a new one. You don't get that with digital. Um, how do you define a user? You know, you, you're charging a price, but who's buying it? Is it one student, each student? Is it um, individual students or just 100 students in a school? Um, obviously, security, this was uh, a debate early on in the digital publishing world of entirely copyable. How do you manage that one? Um, usually through license and agreement. Um, actually, we can update with new content. So even in Pearson, which is probably one of the biggest publishers, um, our systems are very much set up to publish something and leave it and then move on to the next project. Actually, in a digital world, you need to be putting some money aside for year one, year two, year three, year four of updated content and commissioning that content. Um, one thing, obviously different to a book world, is once you've produced this, a lot of money goes into the content. In some instances, a lot of money goes into a platform development, but not always. Um, depends on the format. Um, but you can produce multiple copies, if you like, at, at no cost, because it doesn't matter if one person accesses it or 10,000 people access it. You've got some hosting and loading issues that it's catered for, but not a lot. You can chunk up content. Um, you know, we've had numerous discussions in-house about books. Do you produce one big book, two small books, chapter books? How does one do this? You have to make a choice um, because you can't afford to produce them in all formats. Actually, digitally, you can do that a lot, a lot more easily. Um, this is a big one for schools. I think in, in our worlds, we're very, very used to digital equals online. Um, we, we have easy access to online. At home, it tends to be reasonably fast. Um, I was quite pleased this morning. I came in the door, I plugged my laptop in, and it worked straight away. Um, and teachers, imagine you are not the well-behaved people you are, but you were a, a rowdy class of 12-year-olds, if I don't get that working straight away, if the, if it's the download time's um, too long, or if the site's down, or whatever, I can't get it online straight away. I was just worried about the projector working, let alone something online being needed. Um, that's a problem, and it 
doesn't give me the confidence to use a digital product. So I start to think, I just want to know. It's loaded into my laptop and it's there. And I don't have to be online because then I can just use it. Um, it's different if you're sat, if it's a homework product and, and, the, and a child's using a computer at home because home use, accessing a computer and being on the internet seems to be much the same thing. But it's not always in other environments. Okay, so um, big macro level, I think there's probably three main models for why you would do a digital product or range of products or services. So one is it makes money. It's something I sell, it makes margin and great. Um, it doesn't always work like that. The other scenario is um, actually I've got a book, a teacher's guide, a revision guide, a homework service online, a teacher planning service online. That group of products brings in the profit I need, but one brings in a bigger <coughs> margin than the other. And so you'll carry some elements and you others will make up the difference. Um, so the whole course is fine, but I know that some digital elements here are not making the margin they need. That's quite a common scenario when you're doing a, a big range of um, products. And the other is um, a complete loss leader, where you decide to invest in this digital product, not expecting revenue at all, or the revenue does not match the cost in any way, but it's a, it tracks people in, and then you get the money from um, the, the book sales. So for instance, um, in the US, Pearson has huge um, dominance in the year one textbook market. There's massive biology texts and chemistry texts that uh, students use in their first year. They buy the book and in the back will be a CD or more often now a link to an online service, a course companion, that's free. They don't have to pay for it at all once they've bought the book. But the book sales then, it gives them competitive advantage, they sell more books, they can justify the digital course. So I think they're the kind of big three ones, but it's really easy to think this is a good idea, but you've got to have your business model, your business case robust, um, because it, otherwise you end up investing in it. And you think, actually, if we hadn't produced that, how many less books would we have sold, and does it balance? Um, that's an interesting one. And that's very much a higher ed um, issue. Right, pricing, pricing. Oh, even last week we were sat down having the conversation that we have every year, for, uh, for me at least the last eight years, of new service, what's the best pricing strategy for this? And uh, in a world that we're in, in education, where you have <coughs> students, you have teachers, um, you have this um, A-level, you could have an A-level chemistry class that has five people in it, and an A-level chemistry class that has 300 in it at a college. How do I get the pricing right so it suits both scenarios? Um, a GCSE course might last two years. Um, do I get them to buy in for those two years? Or actually, do they want to taste it? Do they, do they want a small amount of it at once? So <laughs> it's really hard. So there's a, there's a selection for you with no right answer whatsoever. Um, but here's, here's, here's an example. Um, okay. I, I'm a sales rep, I go into a school, I say I've got a fantastic revision site for your GCSE student, it's going to be the biz. It's going to cost them £2 each, that's all it's going to cost them. Um, as a school, very often what they'll do is they ask the students to pay, so they say, if you give us £2, 
ping it in, uh, then we'll give you access to the site. Sounds really affordable. Okay, if you said, uh, yes, we've got this wonderful revision site, as a school it's going to cost you nearly £2,500, but it's well worth it, you're going to go, you must be joking. This is an enormous amount of money for us to, as a school to commit to. Actually, the amount of money is the same. In this scenario, take a school that's got 200 students in a year, GCSE is a two-year course, you've got 400 students, uh, that's £800 for a three-year licence, quickly goes up to 2500 So sometimes the way you present the pricing can have a real effect on the success of the, of the course, even though the money's potentially the same if everybody was to um, buy in. Now obviously, this model, if you made the assumption that everybody was going to buy into it, you'd get the same money. But here you're giving them the option not to. So you've got to cater for that. You mustn't make a mass assumption that they are going to all buy it. Okay. Um, there's loads and loads of people involved. This is some of the roles we have at Pearson. Uh, instructional designer. Anyone know what that, that person does? Come across that phrase? That's a person who works with authors, works with examiners sometimes, and thinks about an interactive activity. If I want to practice reading an exam question and working out what I need to do, then what sort of activity might help me with that? We had a brilliant one at Key Stage 3, 11-year-olds, uh, where we said there's a requirement for them to debate scientific issues, but even the process of debating is not very straightforward for a class of 11-year-olds, um, let's think of a structured activity that you can do front of class that enables that debate to happen. And instructional design will help you with that. We've got platform development, we've got a lot of market researchers. Sometimes it's you as a publisher, but we also have a market research team who help us produce, you know, put focus groups together and things like that. A digital project manager, making sure all the strands uh, on the digital side come together. You've got your authors, editorial, user-centred designers, they're the ones that that really watch how it is being used. Um, so Apple, Apple are the absolute best. They must have 50% of their people being user-centred designers because all the time they're thinking about how intuitive is it? How simple is it for me to use? Do I know immediately that I need to do this, this, this? The clunky products out there can't afford all of this and just feel clunky. And it's because UCD will watch how somebody... I, I've read this bit, I'm expecting to press something there. Oh, I'm not expecting to scroll down and find something down here. They're very much thinking about how we <coughs> use it and making it intuitive. Technical lead, we're thinking about all the uh, nuts and bolts under, or the bits under the bonnet. Design, design's really important. Uh, completely different skill designing for digital than it is for, um, for print. Um, copy editing, same as normal publishing. Subject experts, you know, we need to make sure that content is correct and make sure that content is developed. Um, sales and marketing are crucial to this. We've done some fantastic products in the past and we've not thought enough about how to tell people about them. And when you produce something like a book, there's something called the flick test. Somebody picks it up, I'm sure you do, you automatically pick up a picture of it. What impression do I get from just flicking through it? Oh, that looks good. Oh, yeah, yeah. You get a sense. We've done stuff before where we've gone, uh, here's an email with a link. Okay, that goes in the junk mail. Um, there's not that immediateness to it. So, okay, okay. What we'll do is produce a printed leaflet that shows what the digital is going to be like. Well, that's a bit better. At least it gets somebody's interest. 
but it doesn't really give me an experience and we've had to do an enormous amount of work really thinking through the evaluation process how does somebody get a feel for a digital product um, without having to go through a big process to get there to sign up to activate something to load users how do you actually get them to experience it we had a great example back in 2005 um, it was a site that was for A-level biology and um, it required individual teachers and students and technicians to, to have logins and they, those, those, that data was loaded and then when it was loaded it was a brilliant biology course that had homeworks in it, information in it, all sorts of things in it. And the evaluation process was free trial, you can have a free trial of this course. The free trial released, people went into it and went there's absolutely nothing there. And they looked, they went around the site, nothing there. And of course, ah, you've not loaded your users yet. You need to load users before you see anything. And of course, there's a lot of people that want five, ten minutes in a break just to get a sense of this. I want to look at a few questions. I want to look at a few activities. What's the structure? What's in there? How many have I got this and the other? They couldn't see a thing until they put in about a two hours of effort to load everybody in. Then they could look at it. Of course, that was not the best way of doing about it. Um, and what's your role as the publisher? You've got all these people doing lots of things and your role is going right back to the beginning of the process. You know who you're targeting this at. You know their needs. You know what your concept was delivering. Um, you've got to keep hold of that very strongly because there's a lot of people trying to do a lot of good things and they can easily drift. Um, and so my last point here is probably the most important one you can go through all of this process and do really good work and if it's not easy to use at the end of the day nobody will buy it um, but you've got a lot of things in there that um, i've talked about that's about it um so i've allowed plenty of time for questions because i normally do get plenty of questions um for those of you doing the, the course, good luck with your projects. You're going to see me later in the term to have a look at them. Um, and a friend of mine will come along as well, um, Mark Block, who's the digital um, project uh, lead, who's, who's very techy. So he'll be interested in exactly what you're doing in your prototypes. I'll be interested in this piece. Um, so any questions? Yeah? So when you're talking about the development of the website and you talk about other examples, Given yeah. that Pearson owns Alexa, would you say that you try and appeal to other? Oh yeah, other yeah. The, for AQA and yeah, I mean Pearson's are massive. We own Penguin, Dorling Kindersley, the Financial Times, Edexcel. So um, we, um, when it comes to working with Edexcel for their official publishing, obviously there's a relationship there. Um, but completely separately to that, we'll. We're just a publisher, and we'll publish for wherever we feel there's a market that we can compete in. Go on. To what extent are you trying to supplement textbooks, and to what extent are you trying to replace textbooks? That's really interesting. Um, I think we've had many years where the heart of what we do is based on a textbook, and we almost harness the navigation provided by a textbook. So. Um, Back in 2006, different publishers attempted sort of a new digital course. Uh, the company I worked for, which was Heinemann, we said, you can't base it always on the textbook. Just move away from the textbook and produce a course that's based on the structure of the specification and the course. Um, but the textbook's there as a component you can buy, but you don't have to. And another company, Longman, and we're now part of the same piece, uh, so I've got two halves of backlist um, they said look 
the, the analogy of the book is so strong, we'll have the book on screen. We'll have the book on screen to use as a navigation tool. So if I want my evolution resources, I just go to page 76 in the context page evolution. There it is. And so you have a picture of the book on screen, and there might be a video there, there might be a PowerPoint with some learning objectives, there might be a quiz, but it's all there, but it's really using the book as, as the heart of it. So it shed loads, it's really popular. <laughs> and it's like, okay, this, this analogy with the book is still really strong. But that was 2006. Um, and so over the years, we continually evaluate what's the purpose of a textbook. And I think increasingly, textbook is a safety net for a cover lesson. So you, um, as a teacher, you're very confident in doing what you're doing, using all the sorts of digital um, tools and everything else at your disposal. If you have a cover teacher in, fantastic, get the books out of the cupboard, can you do these questions, please? Um, so there's definitely a safety net piece there. There's still very much, um, particularly in something like our language courses, the progression is all laid out there in front of you. Start at page one and finish at the end you will have covered everything you need to cover in the right order. In science, they care far less about that. They dip into the bits that they want. Um, so yes, there's still a kind of allegiance to the textbook, um, and people are still wanting to link digital to the textbook. We get asked a lot, I want more and more of my book on screen, but I want the book on screen. That's one of those situations where you think, do I listen to what they want, or do I jump ahead to predict more the need they're expressing but do it in a different way and um, we've been on the cusp of this for about 15 years and <laughs> it's still like a question um, so I think there is definitely a movement away from printed materials but not necessarily a move away from printable materials you know things like lesson plans we used to produce them in a printed file and we now tend to produce the printed file so I can flick through and just get a glance what there is, and then we'll produce them as Word documents. So although they're digital, they're printable digitals, I can amend them and then I use them in a printed out format. Um, and in schools, worksheets are used a lot still. Um, it's, and this is where you've got to get under the skin of, say, something like um, an English essay. Um, sometimes it's just easier for a teacher just to collect a load of printed, either handwritten or printed things in and just sit in front of the TV, than um, kids having to do everything digitally, the teacher having to work it out digitally. It doesn't always work. So it's a, it's a balance. But I think um, more and more uh, the book is part of the piece. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's very good. Go on. Sorry, yeah, we've got loads of time. Generic is the wrong word, but if you were to make a website about GCSE science, would you make sure that that website um, could match the specifications for all the examples, or would you go, okay, we're going to do one GCSE science website that is for LXL, one that's for AQA, and one, you know, depending on obviously... It depends how similar they are. Yeah. I mean, take, take GCSE science, mm -hmm. uh, different publishers do take different approaches, and some produce a very similar book that's you know fine for all boards. Mm -hmm. It comes back to that point of... Um, the need, who am I targeting it at? Now, if, if the specifications are each slightly different, take history, you might have quite different topics in there. If, um, if you felt the important thing was it matches the specification, then you probably do separate sites. If actually the special thing that you're dealing with is 
access to loads of um, resources out there in museums um, and you know 360 degree tours of museums you might say that's one site that's got it all there and by the way here's a kind of checklist of what what matches which specification so it's what what you're trying to do and who you're targeting at does that make sense yeah That's been a really, really interesting one. For about the last four years, I should think, has been the most active. Where, for those of you that, um, I don't know if everybody's aware, so VLEs um, in schools, there's not one standard platform. There's about six or seven that different schools or local authorities can decide to sign up to. Um, there was a drive uh, with the Labour government of really pushing and getting these into schools. Um, they weren't the most elegant of systems. They were fairly clumsy to use. Um, and so what tended to happen was there'd be this from up high, oh gosh, we've got to start using our VLE, and then probably your ICT coordinator or somebody who was techie would be charged with making sure it gets used in departments. So one of the needs we had coming through was, oh, I've got to somehow get used to using my VLE. Um, but there wasn't, there wasn't an overwhelming sense of, wow, this is a useful tool for help me helping me with my teaching. So we did two things. One was we said, if you put content on a VLE, you're essentially disaggregating it. You're saying, you know, here's a science course, here's all the bits, and you can put it, you know, have a bag of bits that you can just put out onto your VLE in, in however you want to file the stuff. Um, now, that's useful for somebody who's willing to take the time to do that, and we did provide our products in that kind of form for some people. But it took a lot of effort, and only some schools and some teachers in a department would do anything like that. And the rest were left going, oh, just give me the whole thing in one piece. In which case, we'd have more of a system of a link out from a VLE to a product. Because, you know, as I said, we're not producing just content. We're producing um, a way through that content, a way to make sense of that content. If you strip all that out of the way and just give you a bag of, of useful stuff, you lose a lot of that integrity. So we did a fairly clumsy job, I'd say, of trying to cater for both camps. But I think it's becoming more and more obvious that teachers are great collectors of free stuff and all sorts of bits and bobs. Um, yes, it's quite nice to have, be able to buy another bag of stuff I could put up. But now that we've got a different government in place where there's not quite such a push, perhaps, for VLEs is the be-all and end-all, they're quite happy to think about bypassing it and just having services that work well doing the job they're supposed to do yeah it's a good question though because it really split the way we ought to be going you know do we go down a route that actually teachers aren't very comfortable with but we make it easier for them or do we bypass it and do it that way yeah uh, yeah just a quick question obviously um the future is getting digital um so you've got like augmented reality game based learning gesture based, uh, gesture based computing and stuff like that um, so obviously people can be learning all digitally. Um, if Pearson are part of Excel, are they going to be changing the exams eventually to match uh, sort of digital side of things? Because obviously the kids are not going to be writing as much because they're going to be doing it online uh, and interactive. So therefore there might be a bit of a lost link between when you actually come to doing the exams. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not in a position really to answer that one. I would say that they already do have some um, online 
testing going on. Um, and yeah, there is probably a bit of a disconnect between um, that ability to write a great big essay on a piece of paper when I spend most of my life in a digital world. Um, but I don't think that necessarily means that if you want to test certain skills, writing it down might, you know, showing it in an essay format might be the best way of doing it. Um, so I don't quite know whether the, the effort is put into giving students the capacity and the ability to practice and understand what's required and build the skills to um, be able to show their best in an exam, or whether it's you change the exam. Mm. But I'm not in the place to say. <laughs> um, but I think one thing um, that is quite interesting is the difference in investment that we have as a publishing company. You know, some of the stuff you discussed, we go, oh, fantastic, we ought to do all that sort of thing. We ought to have fancy games and you know, learning experiences and think, no, we, you know, we can't afford that sort of thing because we've got to produce a course that covers every topic in three years. Um, and there is a difference then between what we'd like to do in some of that fancy stuff and what we can do, and that's when your small providers tend to come in. You will get quite small companies who specifically do an activity in one area that a school will decide is worth purchasing. It's not our ball, we don't do that, but somebody should and could. Yes? Um, thank you very much, it's a fantastic talk. Um, but I was particularly interested in, in um, how much lead time as a, as a business you have about these changing curriculum, because clearly the changes in curriculum are what drive <coughs> the new product. Yeah. Yeah. How, how much, you know, there's a lot of pre-planning. Never enough, never enough. Day, but how much um, do you get? Oh, I mean, sometimes, if you say, we ought to be presenting a business case about a year before we um, then actually produce the first components of the course, um, we will probably know uh, around three months before that. We'll get an idea of a draft, but we won't have the final changed curriculum. So we're very often predicting what it might be, looking at drafts, trying to start authoring and development. Oh, it's changed a bit, working like this. Um, and uh, we've just had, um, we, we know Key Stage 3 is going to change. Um, and. We thought it was 2013, and now we've been told it's probably going to be 2014. Well, that gives us some more time. So we thought, okay, what should, you know, this is actually a really good opportunity, and we're doing a lot. We don't know what's in that curriculum, but we know we've got more time to prepare for it. So we're doing a lot of things that are absolutely nothing to do with what that final curriculum is, and that's the preparation you can put in. You know, looking at... Um, we've got a, a, a Key Stage 3 science course that's got thousands of assets in it. Well, actually, why don't we make sure we've got that well documented, we've gone out and checked which, which, um, what people like about the course, what they don't like about the course, how they'd like it to develop, whatever the curriculum, thinking about the digital side of it, um, where should we be going next. All of that has got nothing to do with what the curriculum turns out to be like. So, yes, we do do a bit of um, that and then a bit of predicting what it might be, a bit of concept development about what it might be, and then going back when we know what it is. Slight pincer movement, I would say. Um, whereas in higher education, I, I used to work in higher education publishing, where we'd be producing sort of second stroke, third year texts. And that was very different, because you've not got a national curriculum, you've not got something big changing. Um, and there, you spend a lot of time uh, picking up trends so there might be a big area in the research world 
and then the more established it gets, the more likely it is then to filter down into sort of second and third year modules. And then there's an increasing demand across the country, quite a lot are now doing nanotechnology in the second year of a biology degree. Right, okay, that's we probably need a textbook. So that's a more slow burn building up of knowledge situation where you're using your knowledge to predict what you think is going to be the next big thing for a textbook and trying to get in there. Yeah, go on, you're fine. Uh, I think I read that you've gone into partnership with Apple um, in the sort of education announcement. I was just wondering what that partnership sort of means for the future. I wish I knew more. Um, <laughs> we, as in Pearson, has gone into partnership, and I clocked back to two and thought, I must know more about this one. Um, I think it's the US educational team so it will filter through to us and we will find out and we will think more about it but it's not us us here in oxford um but yeah i think uh, it's it's fascinating that just working with partners and making the two pieces develop together because particularly i think in an education world it is quite a a different world with different requirements compared to um the world about it. i mean look at kindle um, you know, download novels on Kindle, black and white text, very simple structure, easily <coughs> flows. With a textbook, not only is it visual, but a lot of photographs, but the intrinsic flow on the page is really important. And, you know, you might need a photograph, and it's important that that bit of text relates to that bit of photograph. So the whole structure is very important. Add in then the interactives, the videos, and the flash interactives, which are obviously a problem. Um, it is really complex, but it would be brilliant, absolutely brilliant, to get more um, content onto devices. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. Oh, good. Thank okay. You so much. <laughs> <laughs>